corporate America has to stand up. Many of the corporations have enjoyed their largest and, and all of the benefits because they are in America. And so therefore, there's an obligation that corporate America has to making sure that America thrives. A strategic advisory firm helping CEOs and C-suites achieve maximum value? This is Word on the C-Street, a show where influential leaders reflect on the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and share their perspectives on the defining challenges and opportunities of our time. Hi, I'm John Hennis, founder and CEO of C-Street Advisory Group. Welcome to Word on the C-Street. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Jamie Harrison, chair of the Democratic National Committee. You'll hear Jamie discuss why he thinks corporate America has a responsibility to ensure all communities thrive and offer his path for preserving hope through what could be a turnaround moment for the country. Jamie, I want to thank you for coming on today and joining us. I want to jump in with one of the most important topics today, which is the threat to our democracy. We watched the insurrection. Uh, We have the gerrymandering that's been going on. We have state legislatures trying to decide who the electors are for the next presidential election. I have a real fear about our democracy in the country. How can Democrats respond to this threat and make sure that we preserve our democracy? The sad thing, my friend, is that this preserving democracy in America has become a partisan issue. I cut my teeth in politics working at the knee of the legendary congressman from South Carolina, Jim Clyburn. Congressman Clyburn was elected in office in in 1992, along with a big class of Democratic freshmen, but a lot of African-Americans, particularly from the South, because that was the year in which Southern states created majority minority districts. And for the first time since Reconstruction, You had a large crew of African-American members of Congress come to Washington, D.C. Congressman Clyburn is one of the last few people I would give the the honor of the word or title statesman. Working in his office doing the in the majority whip's office, he would often say to me, you know, Jamie, in life and even in politics, that we may take different paths, but hopefully the destination is the same. And as that reference to politics, you know, Democrats and Republicans may be different in in terms of their approach, but there was always this thought that we we shared a love of America and who America was and what made America special, which our democracy, the ability for everybody to, to live the American dream and be able to exercise their rights. I used to hold tight to that thought, but I no longer do. Uh, And that really fundamentally changed. It had been changing over the years, but the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back was January 6th. What we saw then and what we have learned since is that the Republican Party led by Donald Trump, in essence, came very close to performing a coup, Uh, something that I never thought I would ever utter in America because of the safeguards that we have in this country to prohibit that. But you have seen the man who was the president of the United States, in essence, try to take power or keep power by any means necessary. 
was looking at the option of declaring a national emergency in order to stop the counting of the electoral votes so that he can maintain power. That is crazy to think that that is going to happen in America. And what is even crazier is that you have a Republican Party led by people like Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell who have turned a blind eye to this effort, who tried to take down the January 6th commission and then discredit it, all because they understood what was going to come out and that their hands are not clean in this. And so what Democrats have to do is we have to stand up and be the lone party to protect democracy and preserve democracy in this country. What does that mean? That means we got to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We have to do all that we can to pass legislation on the federal level to stop the process of stealing elections that is taking place on the local level, that Republicans are trying to suppress voters. And the thing that is really, really, really bad, it's bad enough when you try to keep Americans from the voting box. But what is even worse is once those Americans have cast their ballots to then say, you know what, John, your vote doesn't count. Why? I don't know. I'll just make it up. Right. And that's what we see happening right now in this country. And we got to stop it. Well, I think we also have just this misinformation out there. There's so many people that believe it. Part of the reason why we are in this situation is when the FCC got rid of the fairness doctrine. The fairness doctrine was something that was created back in the 1950s, which basically was a policy required people who had broadcast licenses to present both sides of controversial issues. So that if you're going to put something up, you needed to have it be balanced with the what the alternative uh, discussion point was. Well, we got rid of that. And then what you saw was on all those radio stations, many of the those stations turned into far right radio programs. And that's when you saw the real emergence of Rush Limbaugh's and, and all those folks. And it really transformed news and information in this country because it, it became very, very skewed. And these folks like Rush saw that the way to get a lot more listeners is come up with the craziest, most outlandish things that you could do or characterize the other side. Uh, and there was no pushback to that. And that's a big thing. You know, at the DNC, we have a, a whole unit that is geared towards and focused on the misinformation, disinformation, particularly as we see it in social media. Uh, and we're, we're making some some progress on the margins. But ultimately, I think because we don't have a Fox News, we don't have an own, which are, in essence, extensions of the Republican Party. Democrats are at a disadvantage on that. And so we got to do more and find more in that space. The DNC is working hard there, but I, it has to be more than just the DNC that, that is doing stuff to push back the, the craziness that we we're hearing from the far right. The Democratic Party is diverse. The Republican Party is, is, is monolithic. But we do have this party where you have mansion on one side, the squad on the other, as we're trying to get the infrastructure bill passed, as we're trying to get Build Back Better passed. How do we bring it together from a messaging point of view? You know, I, I think the big thing, John, is that people have to start stop talking past each other and, uh, and start talking to each other. You know, we all come from different backgrounds and different areas. Uh, we have different priorities, but there are also a lot of commonalities. And I think if we spent more time figuring out and listening to each other to figure out what the commonalities are 
and work on those first and foremost. Then afterwards, when you exhausted all of those commonalities, you can fight like hell on everything else, right? <laughs> you can have the disagreements. I often tell people there's nobody in, in life that I love more than my wife, but we don't agree on everything. I'm sure you and your wife don't agree on, on, yeah. on everything, but we still figure out how we work together in order to move things forward for our families. You know, being in a Democratic Party has to be the same way. We can't get anything that we want done, either if you're a moderate Democrat or a progressive Democrat, if we don't have each other, because that means we don't have the majority. We'll have those one minute speeches at 9.30 p.m. at night when nobody is watching the floor of the House and you can talk and rant all you want about whatever it is you want. But that's not how we make a difference in the lives of people. If we're really in this business about making a difference for the constituents that send you to Washington, D.C., then you figure out how the hell you get in a room and work together with your colleagues in order to get things done. That's how it works. And that means you're not going to get everything you want. In life, you don't get everything you want. You are one of 435 if you're in the House, and you're one of 100 if you're in the United States Senate. If it was just about getting one vote, then yes, you could bring home everything you wanted for your district. But it's about getting 218 votes uh, in the House. And it's about getting, you know, until you get rid of the there's 60 votes in the United States Senate. And only if you get those two things that you then can send it to the White House for a signature, and then you got to get the presidency. So that means there's a lot of give and take. You're not going to get all that you want, um, but you work as hard as you can to get some of what you want so that you can go back and deliver for the people in, in your community. Now we know why you're the leader of the party. I want to talk a little bit about, about you. So you ran for Senate in South Carolina. You raised a record amount of money in that and had support from all over the country. Um, you gave Lindsey Graham the, the toughest challenge that he's had in, in definitely recent memory. But ultimately, you weren't able to overcome kind of the, the Republican hold on the state. What did you learn from that experience uh, that informs your approach as the DNC party chair? Well, the big thing I, I learned is that, you know, TV and mail and, and digital are not enough. Democrats win when we're on the ground and we can interact with people, talk to people, and that's how we get folks to the polls. COVID really hurt us in that aspect in that we weren't able to put on the, the types of ground operations that are so key, I think, uh, to get the turnout that is necessary to win these big races. We won despite that hurdle. But there are a number of campaigns, and, um, and mine included, that I think could have been even more competitive. And we had that type of uh, ground operation. We have now figured out, even in a COVID world, how to do that in, in a safe and efficient and effective manner. My, my focus is making sure that that is a mistake that we don't make again. Starting to see corporations respond to the social and political issues of our day more and more, whether that's voting rights, abortion, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, business leaders are trying to be part of the solutions in the country. Sometimes they're being pushed by the young employees at their companies that want to make sure they're working at companies that are actually looking to make a good social impact. What do you think corporate America should be doing? Well, I, I think corporate America has to stand up. 
many of the corporations have enjoyed their largest and, and all of the benefits because they are in America, because this is a country that provides the freedom and, and we have the resources and all. I mean, so much that our government does uh, in terms of investment for the private sector, probably disproportionate to what you see in other nations. Um, but we do that in terms of research dollars, in terms of infrastructure, all the things so that we can see corporate America thrive in this country. And so, therefore, there's an obligation that corporate America has to making sure that America thrives uh, and that all communities, particularly ones that help provide profits to them, have the investments that, that are necessary. And so I think there's a big responsibility. You know, if we lose American democracy, the nature of the relationship between government and corporations will also change. If you don't believe me, take a look at some of these countries out there where, where they have dictatorships. And I can tell you, you don't see in those nations thriving private sector. And so I, I think there's a big, big responsibility there to stand up on the side of what's right. What got you there, which is uh, uh, an open and free America. I want to talk a little bit now about you. You grew up uh, the son of a single teenage mom raised by your grandparents in South Carolina. How's that shaped you as to who you are, both as a person and a leader? Yeah, well, John, it, it has totally defined who I am and, and what drives me. Um, you know, my grandmother had an eighth grade education and she picked cotton and worked in textile plants. My grandfather had a fourth grade education and he worked construction most of his life. Uh, they didn't have health insurance. They were defrauded out of their home. A lot of people took advantage of them, but they were hardworking people, good people that, that had uh, a great set of, of core values. And those are the values that instilled in me, you know, to be fair to other folks, even when folks aren't fair to you, to try your best to help and make a situation better instead of making it worse. As my grandma said, to always do what you can to the, for the least of these, right? Because she, she reminded me that you, you come from the least of these. Uh, and th those are, those are the, the virtues that they instilled in me. And what has driven me is to make sure that folks like my grandparents, who really didn't have much of a voice in our society, that I could represent them with my voice. Uh, that I took all of the things that I learned, you know, the opportunities that have been given to me that, and, and that I was able to take advantage of, you know, going to Yale and Georgetown, working on Capitol Hill, you know, running for the Senate. Now I'm becoming chair of the DNC, that I'm out uh, using those opportunities and positions for my own better, betterment, but that I'm using that in order to be the voice uh, to, to really make a difference in the lives of those folks. And so uh, that that's what motivates me each and every day to push harder, to work harder, to do more. And it's part of the reason why I love being a, a Democrat, that those values that I mentioned are core values that make up the Democratic Party. Uh, An understanding that community is important for all, that it's not about the individual, but it's about the community that we all live in. And if the community thrives then the individuals within the community thrive as well. And those are also the things that give me hope, that, that the better days are ahead. I, I really wholeheartedly believe that. Um, I was involved in your campaign. There was a story that you used to tell about someone who talked to you about how you gave her hope when you worked for Congressman Clyburn. Do you mind telling that story? 
that was an important experience for me. Uh, it happened when I was a staffer for Jim Clobbern. I, I ran the whip operation for Mr. Clobbern and actually had an, an office on the third floor of the U.S. Capitol, uh, right above the speaker's balcony. I shared a wall with John Lewis and I shared a wall with John Kerry. So, you know, you think about it, little round-headed guy from Orangeburg, South Carolina, and it's in this big office. And, you know, I was working late one night because, you know, when you work for Jim Clyburn and Nancy Pelosi, uh, they're, they're, they're hardworking people. So I was in my office late at night working on some things, whipping for, for some bills coming up. Uh, and it got so late that the custodial staff showed up. Out of the corner of my eye, I'm sitting at my desk, I'm typing away. I see this African-American woman that's vacuuming and she's cleaning up and and she looks in and then she walks by and she looks in again. And finally, I, I look up and say, hey, ma'am, you know, come on in. Uh, you do what you need to do. I can leave or, or what have you. And she said, oh, no, no, just sit down. She said, you know, son, I come and clean your office every night. You have a nice office. I said, thank you, ma'am. I appreciate it. She said, now, are you from South Carolina? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. I'm from Mr. Clobbins district. She said, oh, okay. And then she goes over to my wall. She looks at my pictures. She said, oh, I love looking at your pictures. She said, is this a picture of your family? I said, yes, ma'am, it is. Uh, she picked up one. She said, is this your mother in the picture? I said, yes, that's my mom. Son, is, is your mom's name Patricia? I said, yes, ma'am. My mom's name is Patricia. She said, Patricia Harrison? Yes, Patricia Harrison was my mom. And she stopped in the middle of the room, John, and she, she started shaking a little bit. She put her hand to her mouth and she said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. She said, I know your mother. I went to high school with your mom. I remember when your mom dropped out of school in order to have you. Tears start flowing from her face and she comes over and hugs you. And she said, I would have never thought that Patricia Harrison's son would be right here. You give me hope. And that story has stuck with me, man. Uh, it really has stuck with me because that's what this country is all about, John. And that's what makes America, America. And that's what makes it so special that the son of a teen mom who dropped out of high school could be sitting in the people's house, uh, the most powerful building probably on the face of this planet. And, and that's what makes it this whole thing special. And it's about us giving people hope, but also guarding that hope, protecting the flame of hope that so many people have. It's something that's precious. It is something that can be extinguished. And, and in many communities, it almost was over the past four years. We have to do more and we have to do better. Um, and that's what I try to do each and every day. So before I let you go, I've got three quick questions for you. First, tell me about something that's been on your mind lately. You know, this is a quote that, that I think Corey and I love to share. And then Corey Booker, uh, who's a dear friend, it says, in the darkest nights, we see our brightest stars. And we've had some dark nights. Uh, and during that time, we have seen some great people emerge during those moments. One of them is another dear friend that we share is our vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. In those dark days of being in the Senate minority and trying to figure out who we were, you had folks like Kamala and Corey who stood up and really gave people hope. Uh, again, uh, there were dark times, but I'm hopeful that we, we are in a turnaround moment. Give us a hot take. What's something you believe that a lot of people would disagree with? 
I believe the press will probably disagree with me that Democrats keep their majority in the House and, and we grow it in the Senate. That is my belief. We determine our, our future. Yes, I know what history says, but I also know that you can make your own. If we do the right thing, if we organize in the ma manner that we should, if we are able to talk to our people and get them turned out, I believe that we can keep our majorities in both the House and the Senate. Last one. Who's someone you'd love to hear as a guest on the word on the C Street? You got to get Senator Booker on there. There's no more inspirational guy in politics right now than Cory Booker. And John, I, I want folks to know, in addition, I have a podcast now at the DNC. It's uh, called Welcome to the Party. If you want to hear more about what I'm doing and what other Democrats are doing, subscribe. All right. Well, Jamie, uh, thank you for, for doing this today. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to Word on the Sea Street. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with friends. You can reach us at info at thecstreet.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecstreet underscore NYC.